Well, good morning once again. Let's pray once more. We are a praying church. Uh, let's approach the throne of God once more. Father, we praise and thank you for initiating and administering the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. For you so loved the world that you gave your only son. And we thank you that the cross has come from your loving heart, Father. We thank Jesus for accomplishing the cross, for being the one who came into this world in order to die, that we would be set free and brought back to God. We thank you for the cross, Jesus, for your blood that was spilt there, for the suffering that you endured on our behalf and so that your Father would get glory. And we thank the Holy Spirit this morning for applying the cross to our hearts and our minds. We thank you, Spirit, that you are our comforter. You are the one through whom our enablement comes. You are the one with regenerating power to rebirth us. We thank you, God, for the cross. And we pray now that as we open your word once more, that your unction and your power would attend your word, that you would grab hold of us in our minds and hearts and cause us to deepen into the light of the cross and the glory and wonder of it. And then help us, Lord, to go forward later today and this week, living, rejoicing in what you have accomplished for us and being witnesses for you. We pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, in past Sundays in this series of sermons, we focused on different sides of the single beautiful diamond that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And each side of the cross reveals to us different shades, different perspectives on what was happening at Calvary. So during the week when we spoke about redemption, we were immersed in the world of the marketplace. In his cross, Christ purchased us out of our captivity. So redemption had to do with the world of the marketplace. And then in the week when we looked at the subject of sacrifice, we were focused on the world of the temple and the tabernacle. Last week, when we spoke on the great theme of justification, we were centered in the world of the law court. All of us stand guilty before the holy judge, and the holy judge sent his son to die in order that we would gain right legal standing with God. Justification. Well, this morning we put our focus on the New Testament theme of reconciliation and its connection to the cross. And one thing we should stress right off the top here is that there's a real relationship between justification that we preached last week and this theme of reconciliation that we are preaching on this week. The relationship between justification and, and reconciliation is simply this. 
that when justification happens, when God declares us not guilty, declares us righteous in his cosmic court of law, the immediate fruit of justification is reconciliation. So God declares us righteous, justification, and thereby we have peace in our relationship with God, which is reconciliation. This fact that reconciliation is the fruit of justification or is closely related to justification is perhaps most clear in Romans 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so there's justification, we have peace with God. So there's reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation, again, is the fruit of justification, or we could also say that reconciliation is the sequel to justification. If justification had to do with the law court, reconciliation has to do with the home, with family. That's the postal code that we're in today. Reconciliation is about the restoration of family relationship or personal relationship. Now, there are four main passages in the New Testament that relate the cross of Jesus Christ to this idea of reconciliation. Those passages on screen there, I'll read them out for the sake of the recording of the sermon. Uh, Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21, Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, and then Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. All four of those passages were written by the Apostle Paul, and all four of them are massively important to this theme of reconciliation, but for the sake of time today, we'll focus mostly on only one of them, and that's going to be the Romans 5 passage. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Now, just before we walk through the corridors of the Romans 5 passage, I want to have us just sort of center ourselves just a little bit further on the theme of reconciliation. What is reconciliation and what does it look like? And here again, I'm helped tremendously by a couple of different theologians whom I trust, who have written on this. Stephen Wellam teaches theology at my alma mater, Southern Seminary. And in his recent book entitled Christ Alone, The Uniqueness of Jesus as Savior, Wellam describes reconciliation in this way. He says this, at its heart... Reconciliation means to restore to friendship. To reconcile means to bring together or make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. It assumes that an old relationship has been broken and now as a result of some action, Two parties who were once opposed are restored to each other. I think that is a pretty well-rounded definition of what reconciliation is that helps us to focus better on what we're talking about today. Again, Wellam says, at its heart, reconciliation means to restore to friendship, 
To reconcile means to bring together, to make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. It assumes that an old relationship has been broken, and now as a result of some action, two parties who were once opposed are restored to each other. That's Stephen Wellam. The second helpful description of reconciliation that I wanted to share with you comes from the British theologian Derek Tidball from his very important book, The Message of the Cross. Tidball puts it this way. He says, to reconcile is to bring enemies into a state of friendship, to overcome alienation, and to create affinity. It is to heal broken relationships so that those who have suffered them can put away the cause of their hostility and live in close harmony with one another from then on. Tidball goes on to say, and this is important, to be reconciled is not to paper over the cracks and pretend that the cause of the disruption never occurred. Reconciliation is to face up to and resolve the cause of the disruption, realizing that only when the cause has been dealt with can true friendship be restored. Again, quite helpful as we begin to gain a clear understanding biblically of what reconciliation is, what its content is. And with that, let's go to Romans 5 now. And our spotlight will be mainly on verses 10 and 11. But I want us to note, first of all, that verses 10 and 11 are the tail end of a slightly larger unit which starts back at verse 6. If we start at verse 6 and work down through verse 11, what we notice is that Paul is at pains in this little unit of scripture, to paint for us a very unflattering but a very true picture of our condition as human beings who stand before God. So if you have your Bible open, notice that in verse 6, Paul calls us weak. Did you know you're weak? According to God. And probably Paul means that we are morally weak as we stand before him. And then still in verse 6, Paul calls us also ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. And then down in verse 8, we are called sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then finally in verse 10, we're called enemies. So this is a pretty unflattering picture, is it not? Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. What Paul is doing here with this unflattering picture is he's underscoring, writing in bold, the amazing grace and greatness of the cross. See, the idea is not that... Jesus died for strong, godly, righteous friends. No. Jesus came and bled on the cross for weak, ungodly, sinful enemies like you and I who were hostile toward him. 
But let's turn our focus to verses 10 and 11. Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, really, what I want us to meditate on this morning is only the initial part of verse 10 and then the latter part of verse 11, where these words reconciled and reconciliation crop up in the text. Now, Paul is writing to Christians here, just so that we're clear on that. He's writing to those already born again by God's Spirit, and he's reflecting back on what happened to those Christians when God reconciled them to himself. Paul starts by saying, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. The question that naturally arises here is what does the phrase we were enemies mean exactly? Now think through this with me. The word enemies here certainly implies hostility at some level or levels in the relationship, does it not? But the question we need to answer is, from whose side does the hostility come? Just to be clear here, Paul in Romans 5.10 is talking about human beings and God. So that's the relationship in question. But who is hostile to the other so that being enemies is the result? Is it we human beings who are hostile toward God? Or is it God who is hostile to us? Or is it both? Our question is, what is the content of the word enemies here? Is it unilateral where hostility comes from only one side of the relationship, or is it reciprocal, where hostility is coming from both sides in the relationship? Just how broken is the relationship between fallen, unrepentant human beings and the God who made them? And the answer is that what the Bible teaches us very clearly is that there are barriers in the God-human relationship from both sides. From our side toward God, but also from God's side toward us. There is enmity in the relationship from both sides of the ledger. And the word enmity means a feeling or condition of hostility or animosity a feeling or condition of hostility or animosity. There is enmity from both sides of the relationship. From our human side toward God, there is enmity, to be sure. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we were trying to hide ourselves from God, to get ourselves away from his presence, 
The book of Romans itself goes so far as to declare that fallen people who are dead in trespasses and sins are haters of God. Romans 1.30. Haters of God. That sounds like hostility toward God. And in Romans 8.7, Paul says very clearly that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Hostility from our side toward God. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul reminds us that every unbelieving person follows not God, but rather he or she follows willfully the course of this world and also follows the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. Spurning God and ignoring God. This is our condition as unenlivened fallen people. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that the ignorance of unbelieving people, he uses that word, ignorance of unbelieving people, that stems from the hardness of their own heart is what alienates them from the life of God. And over in Colossians 1.21, Paul reminds every Christian that he or she was at one time alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So that, as Leon Morris has put it, there is no disputing the fact that Scripture regards human beings as constituting themselves God's enemies by the fact of their sin. Donald McLeod says, Resentment of the divine rule, disobedience of his law, mistrust of his ways, rejection of his gospel, and hatred of his followers are all fundamental aspects of the human condition. Mankind lives in a state of chronic revolt against their maker. The point that we're trying to establish here is that the phrase, while we were enemies, in Romans 5.10, refers certainly, on one hand, to our hostility toward God as human beings. It refers to the fact that inwardly, in our fallen, unregenerate condition, we human beings are hostile toward God. Enemies. But on the other hand, as we said, the phrase, while we were enemies in Romans 5.10, also refers at the same time to a barrier in the relationship from God's side toward us. And the fact that Scripture shows us clearly that there is a rupture in the relationship from God's side of the ledger toward fallen human beings, this should be especially jarring to each and every one of us. We need to be crystal clear here, so hear me well, that what's caused the hostility from God's side toward us is our prior hostility toward God. I want to say that again because it's hugely important. Listen, the cause of hostility from God's side toward us is our prior hostility 
toward God. In other words, it's our transgressing God's law, our being haters of God, defiant in our sin toward him, that results in God being opposed to us. As early as Genesis 3, we see signs of God's opposition to defiant human beings as he actively drives out Adam and Eve from the garden and banishes them. Hostility towards sinners. And then as the Old Testament revelation progresses, God reveals himself as a God who visits iniquity on those who hate him. And God is described as one who repays to the face those who hate him. Exodus 20, verse 5, and Deuteronomy 7, verse 10. Again, hostility from the side of the Almighty toward the defiant human side. Over in Psalm 5, 5, we read the rather shocking statement that God hates all evildoers. And in Psalm 11.5, we see that God's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In Habakkuk 1.13, God is revealed as having purer eyes than to see evil. He's revealed to us there as a God who cannot look at wrong. As Donald MacLeod summarizes, God cannot condone Sin. He hates it, condemns it, and opposes it. It is so abhorrent, indeed, that he cannot look at it, much less can he be expected to walk in concord with the children of darkness. Again, friends, in all of this, we are discerning the content of that phrase in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies. We're trying to establish the fact that according to the Bible, the animosity in the relationship between defiant human beings and God goes two ways. It is indeed a reciprocal animosity that is rooted in human sin. And this reciprocal animosity is apparent to us, especially in a verse like Romans 1.18. Listen. For the wrath of God, there's the hostility on the divine side. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's the hostility on the human side. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see the reciprocal animosity there? Or the reciprocal animosity shows up also in Romans 2.5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, so there's the barrier that is put up on the human side, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. There's the hostility from God's side that comes as a result of human defiance toward him. Again, what we've established in all of this, I hope, 
is that the phrase, while we were enemies, in Romans 5.10, refers to unrepentant, defiant sinners being hostile toward God. And in return for that defiant hostility, God is hostile toward defiant sinners. It's a two-way hostility and animus. Paul says to Christians, there was a time when we were enemies toward God, and as a result, God was an enemy toward us. Now, if you're a person this morning who is stuck in unbelief and defiance toward God right now, and you've not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the situation we've just described is your current situation. God is against you, according to the Bible. And it's an 11 out of 10 on the, on the terror scale for you. You need to understand that. To have God against you and hostile toward you because of your unrepentant defiance and sin is the greatest personal problem you can possibly conceive. And it's your reality right now if you live outside of Jesus Christ. But I have good news to share. Let's go now to the next part of Romans 5.10. Paul is speaking to Christian believers here in the context. He's reflecting back on what the experience of the Christian has been. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And we'll stop right there. If, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The verb in the original Greek here that translates into the English words, translates into three English words, we were reconciled, it's a single verb in Greek. It's a passive verb in Greek. You never know what you'll get on Sunday, a little Greek lesson here. Passive verbs are action words that describe an action that is done to you. So, I was given coffee. Or, I was taken to Ontario. An action that is done to you. You don't do the action yourself. We were reconciled to God. Reconciliation is done to us. Amen? In fact, look at the next verse, Romans 5.11, toward the end of the verse. Paul says, listen to what he says, that we Christians have received reconciliation. We receive reconciliation. Reconciliation is an action undertaken by another that we simply receive as a gift. If we're in a fractured relationship, just think of this with me, 
You're in a fractured relationship of some kind, and you decide that you will take the initiative and lay down your hostility toward the other person. You will not say in that situation that you received the laying down of your own hostilities. doesn't make sense. But if the other party decided first that he or she would lay down their hostility toward us, that we could receive. As believers, we have received reconciliation. The truth of the matter is that God is the one in the fractured relationship between himself and human beings. God is the one who takes the initiative and acts and effects the reconciliation, and he does that out of the overflow of his grace and his love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The truth of the matter is exactly how 2 Corinthians 5, 18, and 19 describes it. Listen to what it says. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. See the direction that the reconciliation comes from? God through Christ reconciled us to himself. And verse 19, in Christ God, to preach on that, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. You see that? It wasn't any change in attitude on our part. That initiated the reconciliation. It's not us deciding that we will be repentant. It's not that that initiates the reconciliation. No, God initiates the reconciliation all by himself. God decides that his attitude will proceed from wrath to mercy. As the Scottish pastor James S. Stewart, not the Jimmy Stewart of the movies. This is different Jimmy Stewart. Scottish theologian James S. Stewart, he once put it like this. I love this. He said, God, in his changeless and unwearying love, has taken the initiative, has broken into the atmosphere of human hostility, and has thrown down every estranging barrier that guilt and hopelessness and dull resentment can erect. I love that. If we want to put it this way, we want to see the gospel here and put it this way. When God acts to reconcile, he acts out what he preaches. God walks what he talks. And what I mean by that is when God says, when God says in Matthew 5:44, love your enemies, God shows by reconciling his enemies to himself that he loves his enemies. God walks what God talks. Reconciliation in the relationship proceeds from the love that God has for his enemies. Well, focus with me again on Romans 5.10. Set your eyes on it with me. Our question now is this. What is the means or what is the instrument of this reconciliation that God has undertaken. Now watch this very carefully. 
Paul says here that human beings are reconciled to God by something, by the death of his son. So the means or the instrument that brings reconciliation in the fractured relationship between God and human beings is God's son spiked into rough wooden beams and bleeding and gasping to death. The means of reconciliation is the cross and nothing but the cross. The hostility in the relationship that God had toward our sin gets poured out on his own son on the cross, which shows us, does it not, the depth of the hostility, the depth of the animosity that God had toward our sin. His own son is put to death. And it's the death of Jesus that reconciles us to God. As 1 Peter 3.18 has it, it has it this way, Christ suffered, Christ suffered, so that's the cross, he's nailed up on the cross, we wear crosses around our neck, Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. That's what 1 Peter 3.18 says. The cross is the means of our peace with God. The cross is the instrument of the reconciliation. We believers, we need to understand, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son. We really need to drive this point home because even though we might believe it here today as we see it in the text in Romans 5.10, I fear that many of us will default back afterward to sub-biblical understandings that often float around in churches. For example, here's what Paul does not say in Romans 5.10. Paul does not say that we were reconciled to God by praying a prayer. Does it say that in your Bible? No. Paul says that we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. There's a massive difference, friends, between praying a prayer as if that has any power to reconcile us. There's a massive difference between that and the Son of God bleeding and dying on the cross. A prayer in and of itself is not effective for our reconciliation. Pray, yes, But the prayer is simply a confession that the power for reconciliation is all in Calvary. The cross is effective for our reconciliation. Neither does Paul say that we are reconciled to God by a change in our hearts. That doesn't reconcile us. The death of God's Son reconciles us. Paul does not say either, at least in my Bible, that we were reconciled to God, that we are reconciled to God by adhering to the teaching of Jesus or by admiring the example of Jesus. No, what he says is, and mark it well, that we are, if you underline in your Bible, 
underline it or highlight it. We are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. We are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. We are not reconciled either to God by the amazing spiritual feelings that we have when we behold Jesus on the cross. As happy as those feelings are. No, what reconciles us? What reconciles us is the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago in history. That's what reconciles us to God. Likewise, none of us are ever reconciled to God by our own efforts toward God. No matter who we are, we are reconciled to God, friends, only by the death of God's Son. It is the death, the crucifixion. The cross of Christ, the Son of God bleeding and dying that day back in about 33 AD, that alone reconciles human beings to their maker. There is no other way to be reconciled to the God who made you. That death is the only thing in all the universe that is effective for the reconciliation of human beings to God that death was what actually achieved, actually achieved the reconciliation between estranged human beings and God. So if right now you feel your gargantuan need to be reconciled to God, you fly by faith to the cross and only to the cross. You put all the eggs in your basket into the crucified Jesus Christ and you trust him for the salvation and the peace with God that you need. Again, it bears repeating. (laughs) Because this this really needs to sink down deep into our hearts. This is what the Bible teaches us. Romans 5.10, again, says that we're reconciled. How, friends? Say it louder. By the death of God's Son. Or how about Colossians 1.20? That says that peace in the relationship only comes by the blood of his cross. Or Colossians 1.22 says that we are reconciled how? In his body of flesh by his death. Friends, the cross is not just some mere example. The cross actually achieved something, was powerfully effective for something. Namely, the cross is what actually achieved the reconciliation that God in his loving heart had purposed and desired. The cross is where, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, according to 2 Corinthians 5.19, not count, listen to this, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their hostility toward God against them. Do you see that? That phrase, not counting their trespasses against them in this verse, comes right after, notice, it comes right after the words, reconciling the world to himself, which suggests to us quite strongly that the content of God's reconciliation, the shape of the reconciliation, is not counting their trespasses against them. How does God reconcile people to himself? 
by not counting their trespasses against them. And thank God for that grace. Because as Psalm 130 verse 3 says, if God did keep a record of sins, who could stand? Nobody. Donald McLeod again, he says this, God in his mercy refused to reckon our sins against us or require us to bear the penalty. Yes. <laughs> Instead, what God does with our trespasses is he reckons them to Jesus on the cross, and Jesus willingly pays the penalty for our trespasses, and we who believe are reconciled to God. We are brought to God. We have peace with God. What is peace with God? I want to give you a description. Again, Derek Tidball. I love his description of peace, biblically understood. He says, We do not understand the biblical concept of peace if we think it simply means that our war with God is declared over. He says the concept is far richer and deeper than that. Peace means not so much the absence of hostility as the presence of positive harmony. Peace speaks not of the absence of wrong relationships, but of the presence of right relationships. And then he says this. I, loved, I read this several times and ah, I was thanking God. He says, peace is the soil in which our well-being can grow. Isn't that great? Peace is the soil in which our well-being can grow. It leads to our wholeness. It stands for all the benefits of salvation that we find in Christ. Tidball says, all the benefits of access to God, joy in suffering, perseverance in difficulties, transformation of character, and a firm, unshakable hope are ours. <laughs> Life starts all over again and has a richness even in the most adverse of circumstances that we have never known before. And so with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20, I implore you, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Receive the reconciliation that God has accomplished in the cross of his son. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Fly to Jesus Christ. I want to close now with more words. I'm quoting a lot of stuff today, but there's just so much good stuff on reconciliation. Some words here from one of my very favorite preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon. So this is in the late 19th century. Spurgeon's in London. And he preaches a sermon entitled, A Merciful Embassy. Toward the end of that sermon, Spurgeon gave the following plea. And I want you to hear this plea as if it was addressed directly to you this very day. Spurgeon said this. To each one of you, a distinct proclamation of salvation is addressed. 
Whosoever among you will believe that Christ died and that he is able to save you and will trust your soul upon what he did shall be saved. Oh, why reject him? He will not hurt or harm you. Do lay hold of this good hope, for your time is short. Death is hastening on. Eternity is near. Do lay hold of it, for hell is hot. The flames thereof are terrible. Lay hold of this good hope, for heaven is bright, and the harps of angels are sweet beyond compare. Lay hold of it, It shall make your heart glad on earth. It shall charm away your fears and remove your griefs. Lay hold of it. It shall bear you through Jordan's billows and land you safe on Canaan's side. Oh, by the love of the Father, by the blood of Jesus, by the love of the Spirit, I beseech you, sinner, believe and live. By the cross and the five wounds. By the agony and bloody sweat. By the resurrection and by the ascension, sinner, believe and live. By every argument that would touch your nature. By every motive that can sway your reason or stir your passions. In the name of God that sent me. By the Almighty who made you. By the eternal Son who redeemed you. By the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sinner, I command you with divine authority to sanction my vehemence. (laughs) That you be reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, to you we turn. Who else has the words of eternal life but Father, Son, and Spirit? We thank you that you have revealed to us this delicious good news, this hope above all hopes, this great story of which we can enter and take part eternally. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we are reconciled to your heart by the death of the Son. Thank you for justification. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for propitiation. Thank you for all these themes, all this this good news that we've been trumpeting and talking about over past weeks. And we pray that as a people now going into a fresh week, that we would go forward, though adversity comes, with great hope in our hearts because of Jesus and because of what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.